True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht. And this is episode 17, Daisy Demalka, Mother, Wife, Killer. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to give you some information about the show if you're listening for the first time. I started True Crime South Africa in June 2019, and thanks to the amazing support of listeners like you, it's grown and blossomed beyond my expectations. In six months, we've managed to hit... 45,000 downloads. For a podcast in South Africa, especially one started by someone who had zero contacts or experiencing podcasting to begin with, those numbers are pretty unbelievable. I am blown away every single day by the success that this podcast has had and is having. Distribution assistance from Tisa Blackstar has been a big part of that. And for that, I'd like to thank Paige Miller and Scott Smith for their hard work and for taking a chance on this little pot of mine. The biggest part of the success, though, has been the fact that South Africans especially, and also people from many other parts of the world, uh, we reached 23 countries in the last six months, have taken ownership of the true crime South Africa story. You've heard these victims' stories, And although your interest in true crime is a big part of it, you've also felt the need for others to hear those stories. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So now we've come to a crossroads. In order for True Crime South Africa to start really growing and becoming an even bigger platform for victims of violent crime, we need to start raising funds to increase research capacity and buy equipment. One of the first ways I plan to do that is through Patreon, which is a platform that content creators use to fund projects. Patreon donations start at $1 per month, which is around 15 rand. And if I can get 200 Patreons, I'll be able to put out a Patreon-exclusive episode every month, in addition to the usual episodes. Right now, if you sign up as a Patreon, You'll get a shout-out and a thank-you in every episode, and as we grow, Patreons will also get early access to episodes, access to new articles I write, access to ad-free episodes, and early access to merchandise. I'll leave a link to our Patreon page in the show notes, and you can also find the page by going to patreon.com and search True Crime South Africa. I'm looking forward to growing this podcast and seeing it through to its full potential. Today's episode obviously takes us back in history, almost a hundred years in fact, to the 1930s. This case was requested by quite a few listeners, including Nadine Murphy and Colette Creel, on our Facebook page, and I'm pretty sure it was suggested on Twitter and Instagram too, so if I missed your name, I apologise. The fact that so many people still show interest in such an old case is down to Daisy DeMalka's legend, I think. 
Daisy became the icon of an evil woman. In a time when it was almost unheard of for a woman to be a murderer, Daisy took it to a new level. Daisy Demelka did some very bad things, and most of us know that. But I don't think that the true extent of her crimes is really even known. In reading Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Faber, which I used as one of my sources for this episode, I definitely learned a few things I didn't know about the woman, and I think you might be surprised by the cold-blooded nature that truly was Daisy Demelka. Without further ado, let's get into episode 17, Daisy Demelka, Mother, Wife, Killer. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Daisy Demelka was South Africa's first female serial killer. She was born Daisy Louisa Hancorn-Smith in 1886 to William and Fanny Hancorn-Smith in Grahamstown. At the time, Grahamstown was nothing but a dusty village, surrounded by agricultural land, and as one of 11 children, Daisy was most likely overlooked on more than one occasion, and maybe in some way this helped her to hide her true nature. Although, most likely at the time, her psychopathy may have actually been seen as a strength, as when the business of survival is a daily task, there's little time for feelings and empathy. When Daisy was eight years old, her father and two older brothers left South Africa for what was then called Rhodesia, as they'd been promised a piece of land to purchase at a very low price. Two years later, Several other families from the area also left for Rhodesia, and at the age of 10 years old, Daisy was sent with those families to join her father and brothers. Civil war was brewing in South Africa, and this may have been done for her own safety. According to Tanya Faber's book, there's also another story around why Daisy was sent away, and that is that her mother had abandoned the family, and moved to Port Elizabeth to marry another man, and then passed away shortly after. Either way, Daisy travelled the almost 2,000 kilometres to the then Bulawayo, most likely by ox cart. Although the rail system was already starting to develop at this time, the cost for such a long trip for so many people by rail would most likely have been prohibitive. Interestingly, the use of ox wagons at this time actually contributed to the very wide roads we see today in Grahamstown and in parts of Zimbabwe, as they were designed to be wide enough to turn an ox wagon. So picture this if you're a parent. You put your 10-year-old child on an ox wagon, which is headed on a 2,000-kilometer trip with an unknown bunch of people who are no closer to you than your neighbours are. Isn't that a weird thought? Hell, we don't even send a 10-year-old to the post box on their own today. I realise that this was more than a century ago, but still, 
the difference in upbringing is just mind-blowing. And maybe it's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe some kids today could do with a 2,000-kilometer trip on an ox wagon. Although, considering how our Daisy's life turned out, maybe not. Daisy made it safely to Rhodesia and was reunited with her father and brothers. She attended a farm school while she was there, and soon two of her older sisters moved there too. When she was 13, Daisy left to attend boarding school in Cape Town and stayed there until she was 17. Again, this wasn't strange for the time, as there weren't the huge number of schools available that there are now, especially in farming and rural areas, so most children had to live away from home in order to attend school. Daisy, in fact, being a girl, was actually lucky to have received higher education, as it was quite uncommon for girls to be educated beyond reading and writing level at that time. In 1903, she returned to Rhodesia for a while, and then left to attend nursing school in Durban. This is where Daisy would learn her skills with medication and how different substances affect the human body, knowledge which she would later put to deadly use. Interestingly, I had a look at the top 10 female serial killers in the US, and out of their top 10, Six were former nurses or had training in the medical field. This made me wonder whether this was a chicken and egg situation. Which came first, the desire to kill or the knowledge to heal? While Daisy was studying, she would travel back to Rhodesia to spend holidays with her family. On one of these holidays, she would meet a man who would change the course of her life. His name was Bert Fuller and he was just slightly older than Daisy, and worked in a government department. Daisy and Bert became engaged, and by all accounts, they were madly in love. Their wedding day, though, was not to be, as Bert became extremely ill and passed away with Daisy at his bedside. In Blood on Her Hands, author Tanya Farber makes an interesting link. Bert was, at the time, believed to have died from a relatively rare autoimmune reaction, which occurs when the malaria virus is introduced into a body which has recently received a malaria immunization. So Bert had been immunized, as most people were at the time, against malaria, and then he was bitten by a malaria-carrying mosquito, and instead of the immunization fighting off the virus... It turned on itself and killed him. The interesting bit, though, which would only be pointed out years later, is that the symptoms suffered by those who developed this reaction are strikingly similar to the symptoms of poisoning. There would never be any evidence to prove it, but Bert Fuller may well have been Daisy's first victim. We could look at it that way. But of course, we could also wonder whether Bert's death traumatized Daisy so much that she refused to love again and saw every man after that simply as a means to an end. I guess we'll never know. Daisy did benefit financially from Bert's death, though. When he asked her to marry him, he'd also made her the beneficiary to his life insurance, which paid her out £100 when he died. In today's money... 
That's about a hundred thousand rand. Not bad for a struggling student. Whether hardened by loss or simply happy to enjoy her self-created windfall, Daisy stayed single for the next few months. We find her next in Johannesburg, and I can only assume, for lack of evidence, that she could have been there for nursing work. While there, Daisy met a plumber, William Cowell. He was 14 years her senior, and making a very good living in the booming gold mining town. Within 18 months, Daisy became Mrs. Cowell, and the couple would spend the next few years living in Turfentine. Daisy gave birth to five children during this time, but it seemed that tragedy was not finished with her. Before I get into this part, I will say that child death was not uncommon at this time in history. In the early 1900s, at least 200 children out of every 1,000 would die before the age of three. After vaccines were invented and we increased our medical knowledge, this number decreased to just seven out of every 1,000 in 1997. So in the early 1900s, you essentially had a 20% chance of losing a child. This risk seemed to increase tenfold if you were Daisy Calver, because only one of her five children would survive to adulthood. Now there's no proof that Daisy killed these children, but there is proof that she was already showing significant signs of mental illness at this time. Today we know that pregnancy can trigger postnatal depression, and according to Harvard Medical School's Center for Women's Mental Health, Women with underlying or undiagnosed psychiatric disorders are highly likely to see their symptoms first present or even multiply while they are pregnant. Daisy's first recorded pregnancy was with twins. Twins, even today, are often born prematurely and can struggle in their first years of life. So I would imagine the impact was severely compounded in the early 1900s. The twins were fragile, and although there's no record available as to the cause of their deaths, neither child made it out of infanthood. Daisy then gave birth to a son in 1911, who she named Rhodes Cecil. Very original, Daisy. Rhodes was a very healthy boy, and it seems that Daisy showed a bit of a maternal side with this boy, as he was known to be her favourite. Daisy's next child was born quite shortly after Rhodes. She named him Lester, but he wouldn't see his fifth birthday. The cause of his death, or so Daisy told neighbours, was an incurable abscess on his liver. There is a condition called pyogenic liver disease, which is essentially an abscess on the liver. I found the symptoms interesting. They include... Abdominal pain, vomiting, nausea, strange coloured stools, and unexplained weight loss. I'll just leave that there. Daisy's final child with William Cowell was also a boy. His name was Alfred, and he only survived 15 months. He was a seemingly healthy child, 
but he very suddenly started having violent seizures. His mother took him up to bed, but within an hour, he had died. Daisy received an immense outpouring of sympathy from the community. This poor woman had lost four children and a fiancé, all before her 30th birthday. It must have been nice to live in a time where that didn't seem suspicious. Well, nice for Daisy. Not very nice for her victims, though. Daisy and her husband, thankfully, did not have any more children, and showered all of their love and affection on young Rhodes. They moved to a house in Germiston, and Daisy played the role of devoted wife and mother until 1923, when things all went a bit haywire again. Daisy's husband, due to the nature of his manual work as a plumber, often had some aches and pains, and Daisy would dose these ailments regularly with Epsom salts. On the morning of the 11th of January 1923, William Cowell told his wife that the Epsom salts that she'd given him had made him feel worse. Dutiful Daisy summoned a doctor, who prescribed bromide for William. According to Tanya Farber's book, Bromide was used in the 1900s for convulsions and muscle spasms. The doctor departed, but Cal continued to get worse, and eventually Daisy called the neighbours to help. A second doctor arrived to find William Cal turning purple and foaming at the mouth. He died before the doctor could even examine him. Unfortunately for Daisy, This doctor had a little more of a suspicious nature than most, as he refused to sign off William's death certificate. He suspected he'd been poisoned. The symptoms that the doctor had seen were indicative of the use of a poison called strychnine. Strychnine was used at one time in very low doses for a variety of medical ailments. Today it's used as a pesticide predominantly in rodent poisons. It is a highly controlled substance. The symptoms of strychnine poisoning include convulsions, which cause damage to the kidneys and liver, rigidity in the muscles, and then soon the sufferer loses the ability to breathe and passes away. Daisy's day had not come, though, as her husband's autopsy produced a death certificate stating that he had died of chronic kidney disease and bleeding on the brain. William Cowell was buried, and along with him any notion that his death was suspicious. Daisy cashed in on her next life insurance payout, a sum which would have made her a millionaire in today's money. Daisy and her son Rhodes lived in the house they'd shared with the late William for another three years, But as Rhodes outgrew his childlike charm and became a teenager, Daisy no longer seemed to have the same affection for him, and their relationship grew increasingly tumultuous. Daisy then met another plumber, a man who, just like William, was ten years her senior. His name was Robert Sprout. Within months of meeting Daisy, Robert had proposed to her, and, weirdly, They got married on the anniversary of William Cowell's death. Robert Sprout and the now Mrs. Daisy Sprout 
got along very well. But unfortunately, teenage Rhodes was not pleased about sharing his mother with a new man, and he and his stepfather regularly argued. About two years after their wedding, Robert started to fall ill. He was vomiting and experiencing convulsions. His brother was so concerned that he travelled to the house to see Robert one weekend, when his health was at its worst. Daisy managed to convince the distraught man that it was imperative that she was made the beneficiary of Robert's estate. It seems that even though they'd been married for two years, Robert Spurts hadn't thought it was wise to change the beneficiary on his will. Whether that's down to him simply not having got around to it, or whether he had suspicion that doing so may be signing his own death sentence, is up for debate. The fact that Daisy waited for him to be completely incapacitated to insist upon it, though, tells me there was some resistance from his side. Robert's brother managed to convince him to make the request a change, and miraculously, he recovered soon after. A few months later, though, Robert fell ill again. He was enjoying a beer, lovingly prepared by his adoring wife, when he started to exhibit the same symptoms as before. This time, he didn't recover, and by the time he died, he had to be tied to his own bed because the convulsions were so severe. Daisy Sprout received £4,560 from her husband's estate. In today's money, 4.5 million rand. Daisy's two husbands were buried side by side in Brixton Cemetery. Daisy spent the next four years spoiling her son and herself. Rhodes had yet to find employment, but he didn't really need to, it seemed, as his mother was doing a very good job of providing for them. But Daisy had a habit of marrying plumbers, and the next one that crossed her path, Sydney Demalka, became enamoured by her. Sydney had lost his wife and had a daughter of a similar age to Rhodes. He was kind to Rhodes, despite the young man's petulance and spoiled nature thanks to his mother. The pair married, and Daisy took on the surname that we would all come to know her by. This is probably around the time that you're expecting me to tell you that Sydney suddenly came down with convulsions and nausea. Well, he didn't. But someone else in the household did. Rhodes had been under the impression that he was going to be inheriting money from his father's estate when he turned 21. As he was 19 and staring down 20, it had become all he could talk about. Whether that money ever existed, or whether Daisy had somehow accessed it and spent it, is unknown. But either way, Rhodes wouldn't see his 21st birthday to find out. Rhodes had managed to hold down a job for a little while doing minor repairs on cars, and he set off to this job on the 2nd of March 1932. With him was a flask of coffee and some sandwiches his mother had prepared for him. On his lunch break, Rhodes shared his coffee with a co-worker. Both men became violently ill, 
but after vomiting they both recovered. It would later emerge that around this time, Daisy had switched from strychnine to arsenic and was perhaps less familiar with the right dose to give. She didn't fail on the second attempt, though. Daisy DeMalka stood at her son's bedside as he died in excruciating death a few days later. His cause of death was put down to cerebral malaria, which she was thought to have contracted while working in Swaziland a few months before. Doctors believed it must have lain dormant and only surfaced later. No one for a second suspected that he might have been poisoned. It's likely that Daisy was concerned that Rhodes had seen too much in his life. After all, he'd witnessed four siblings, a father and a stepfather, die all of suspiciously similar symptoms, and it wouldn't have taken much as he got older to start putting two and two together. Daisy must have thought that she was getting a witness out the way. But what she didn't know was that someone else was watching her and becoming increasingly convinced that she was not the grieving widow and mother that everyone thought she was. The brother of Daisy's late husband, Robert Sprout, whose name was William Sprout, had his suspicions when his brother had died. He'd been so disturbed that he'd vowed to keep an eye on Daisy's life events from that day on. So when Daisy's son died, in such a similar manner to her late husband, and the husband before that, William Sprout was more than a little concerned. He went to police with his concerns, and to their credit, they too started to see the pattern in this woman's history. It was decided that the only way to get at the truth would be to exhume the bodies of the three men who were believed to be the victims of Daisy DeMalka. Her son Rhodes' body was remarkably well-preserved considering he'd been deceased for more than a month. According to Blood on Her Hands, arsenic is known to preserve corpses, a rather ironic outcome for those who'd seek to use it as a murder weapon. Arsenic was found to be present in the body of Rhodes, and strychnine was found in the remains of Robert Sprout and William Carl. Police also tested Rhodes' workmates, who drank from the coffee prepared by Daisy, and also fallen ill. Arsenic was found in his body as well. He told police about the blue coffee flask, and they retrieved it from the house. Tests concluded that the flask contained traces of arsenic. Soon after, Daisy DeMalka was arrested and charged with three counts of murder. Daisy's trial started in 1932 and could be likened to the spectacle that the Oscar Pistorius trial produced in South Africa in 2014. Just as the Pistorius trial sparked a new interest in all things criminal, and brought many firsts for the justice system, including the first trial to be screened live. Daisy DeMalka's trial brought many firsts for the country in 1932. Daisy was the first female serial killer, in a time where the term serial killer didn't even exist. 
Hers was the first trial where seats in the courtroom became a commodity. People were actually selling seats in the courtroom. The state had a decent case against Amalka, but it would be made even more solid when a chemist walked into a local police station soon after the trial began. Mr. Spilkin owned a chemist shop in Turfentine. He'd seen a photograph of the now-famous Daisy Demelka in the newspaper and realised that he knew this woman. In fact, he told police with great concern, he believed he may have sold her the arsenic she used to kill her son. Mr. Spilkin was quite correct. Daisy Demelka had walked into his chemist shop a few weeks before Rhodes' death and told him that she had a cat who was at the end of its life and needed to be put out of its misery. Apparently it was quite normal for people to euthanize their own animals by poisoning them in 1932. Well, that's one little bit of progress we've made. Spilken had sold her the arsenic and dutifully had her sign the poison's control register, which he kept for such purchases. She'd signed as Daisy Sprout, her previous married name, if you're still keeping track. This was the veritable nail in Daisy DeMalka's coffin. There was not sufficient evidence to find her guilty of the murders of her two husbands, but she was found guilty of Rhodes' murder, and that was enough. In a time when South Africa still had the death penalty, Daisy DeMalka was read a sentence by the judge as follows. You have been found guilty of the murder of your son, Rhodes Cecil Cowell. You will be taken from here to a place of execution, where you will hang by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. Daisy DeMalka received that exact sentence on the 30th of December 1932. Her husband, Sidney DeMalka, refused to accept that she was guilty of the heinous crimes of which she'd been accused, and he maintained her innocence until his own death two decades later. I follow a few genealogy pages, and considering the huge family that Daisy came from, you can imagine how many hand-corn smiths there are. What I find really interesting is that People who find Daisy in their family's tree don't seem to be as horrified as you would expect. I don't think this is strange. Daisy's legend has become something of a folk story. She's become a part of South African history to a certain extent. A lot of that has to do with the passage of time and how what seemed horrific a hundred years ago now takes on an almost fictional feeling. Let us not forget, though, that what this woman did was very real. If we woke up tomorrow morning and found a newspaper headline proclaiming that a woman had been arrested for poisoning two husbands and her own son to death, oh, and by the way, there's also significant evidence that she killed four other children and a fiancé, we would be up in arms. Maybe we're also more willing to forgive because we know that she paid the ultimate penalty for her crimes. On one of these genealogy pages, 
a lady mentioned having researched the Hancorn Smith family, and according to her, every generation of the family had at least one member who was found guilty of abhorrent behaviour. I don't think that this says anything about the family, though. Especially if there are any Hancorn Smiths listening, don't come for me as I'm pretty sure that every family line has an abhorrent member in most generations. No family is exempt from the odd person committing illegal acts. Daisy, Louisa, Hancorn Smith, Cal, Sprout, Demelka was a cold-blooded woman, and if it hadn't been for William Sprout, she most likely would have gone on to kill Sidney Demelka and perhaps even his daughter. After the revelations of Daisy's act, a new gravestone was placed over the reinterred graves of her three acknowledged victims. It reads, William Cowell, Robert Sprout, and Rhodes Cowell, victims of their nearest and dearest. For some reason, I'd always thought that Daisy DeMalco was the first woman to be hanged in South Africa, but she wasn't. Although at the time, the then Orange Free State ran under different governance, Emily Chania was actually the first woman to be executed in the jurisdiction now known as South Africa. Emily was executed along with her lover in 1903 for murdering her husband. The second woman to be executed in South Africa was Maria Rabi, who also killed her husband with help from her lover in the 1920s. Daisy Demalco was therefore the third woman executed in South Africa, albeit the first for a murder of her own child, depths to which even her predecessors hadn't stooped. Murder is murder though, I guess, no matter who it is. There is something intrinsically wrong about a mother murdering her own child, especially when it was clearly premeditated and she watched him suffer. Daisy DeMalco was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave in the Rebecca Street Cemetery in Pretoria West. Staff at the cemetery, though, are apparently very aware of the location of Daisy's last resting place, and they claim to see the woman haunting the cemetery grounds on occasion. Daisy's ghost has been reported to haunt several other places in South Africa, including the courtroom where she was sentenced and the school she attended in Cape Town. I think the true ghost of Daisy DeMalka is the knowledge that although she was the first to be caught, she most likely was not the first woman to completely turn against her duties as a mother to protect and care for her children. And the most frightening part of that ghost is that she was most certainly not the last. Thank you for listening to episode 17, Daisy DeMalka, Wife, Mother, Killer. Before I say my usual farewell, I'd like to thank our very first Patreon supporter, Toast Seegers. Toast, you are always an amazing supporter and I'm so grateful to you for being the first to take the leap and sign up as a Patreon supporter of True Crime South Africa. If you'd like to follow Toast's example, I'd greatly appreciate your support for the show 
which will go towards expanding my research capabilities and purchasing new equipment. Just a reminder that the major source I used for today's episode is the book Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Faber. I know a lot of you purchased it when I first spoke about it, but if you haven't yet and you want to give yourself a belated Christmas gift, it's available for purchase on Take-A-Lot and Amazon. There's a link on our website that you can use to purchase it, and my review of the book is there too. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to follow us on the app that you're using to listen now. You could also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is the last installment in your December bonus series, in which I published a full episode in every week of December. From next week, Friday, which will be 2020, by the way, I will be continuing with my normal schedule of alternating between mini-sodes and full episodes every Friday. So until next Friday, thank you for listening and for all of your support in 2019. I'll chat to you in 2020.